This is episode 14 of the Immunology Podcast, Immunology and Behavior with Dr. Michael Burton. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Jason Goldsmith and Dr. Brenda Roud. Welcome back to the Immunology Podcast, where we have interesting conversations with immunologists. The Immunology Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. Today, we have Dr. Michael Burton from the University of Texas on the podcast to talk about his research on how the immune system modulates peripheral sensory neurons to regulate pain and energy homeostasis. In other words, the immune brain neuron axis. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in immunology news coming up. But first, Stem Cell is hiring. Stem Cell Technologies is a world leader in developing services and tools for scientists working in cell biology, regenerative medicine, immunology, cancer, and disease research. United by a foundation of scientific integrity and driven by a mission to advance science globally, Stem Cell is a team of scientists helping scientists. They're looking for creative, driven people to join their international team. Explore more than 80 current offerings in such areas as R&D, sales, business operations, quality, and science communication at jobs.stemcell.com. Well then, how are you? Doing great here. Enjoying the start of fall. You guys have fall? We don't have fall anymore. We broke it. It's still just summer. It's just like, like wet summer and cloudy summer with tornadoes, but still summer. Yeah, my my condolences about the tornadoes. Isn't it comforting to always have some science to talk about with me and share with your audience? It is. I mean, nothing makes me happier than talking science, especially my first paper with our dear, dear, dear friend, Corona. So I got another Corona paper just for you. That Brenda. guy again? Yeah. It's getting old. But this is oh, well. all the coronaviruses. We're expanding out. It's not just SARS-CoV-2. We can talk about all of them this time as a family. How inclusive. Please go ahead. Yes, these murderous, murderous little monsters. All right. It is titled Elucidation of Broad Protective SARS-CoV-Virus Immunity by Receptor Binding Domain Nanoparticle Vaccines. First author is Alexandra Walls. Last author is David Bessler. And it is accepted as of September 9th, 2021. It hasn't even published formally yet in Cell. So it's the journal pre-proof that we got to look at. Um, it's What I first learned about this is the name of the coronaviruses that we're worried about for SARS, SARS-CoV-2, and MERS are SARS-CoV-viruses, which is a little bit hard to say because anytime you put an R next to a B, it gets a little rough. But anyways, what they did is they make these self-assembling nanoparticles which in the way they work is they have whatever is the vaccine target. Um, In this case, the receptor binding domain of the spike protein of COVID. It's then attached to another part of a peptide that when they're around other peptides, they self-assemble into a nanoparticle. And so they first show as proof of principle, as a reminder that this in non-human primate models, that this receptor binding domain nanoparticle generates good immunity. So generates neutralizing antibodies and they compare it against a lead perfusion stabilized spike protein called hexapro. And then they, you know, do some mutational analysis and say, okay, look, you have some drop in protection against various mutants, but it's still pretty good. But I'm kind of modeling what we already know. And then they mix in a chimera. So they mix in some SARS-CoV-1, so some SARS-CoV receptor binding domain 
do that individually. But the real upshot here to drive the point is they mix in a combination of both. So a nanoparticle mix of SARS-CoV and SARS-CoV-2 to make a, a mixed model nanoparticle. And that provides broad protection to COVID, you know, to COVID-19, the disease and SARS-CoV-1 that hit together better than either of them do alone. Because by adding in that extra virus, you get more cross-reactivity that overcomes the mutational problems by creating a wider range of antibodies that can kind of bind to all the different flavors of receptor binding domain. So it's basically one vaccine to rule them all? One vaccine to find them, one vaccine to bring them all down and in the antigen bind them? Maybe. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Okay. Um, well, I, I think they're suggesting it may not be the best first hit. They may suggest like, you know, they kind of go, they think their approach would be, hey, get like the mRNA vaccines for SARS-CoV-2, but then use this as the booster. But this booster then broadens your protection to mutants. And you can make a mix. So you can make some different receptor binding domains that have, say, some of the more mutants of concern, add COVID-1, SARS-CoV-1, add MERS in if you wanted to make this mix that has kind of a broad protection to generate some, you know, so, you know some immunity to uh, the kind of the, the the bad acting family here. Because it's a little bit easier to assemble these particles, right? You just add the different epitopes that you want and it's easier than making a new adenoviral vector. Exactly, and it's synergistic. So because okay. it produces both of them at once, the antibodies that are generated tend to bind to both. And because they bind okay. to both, they also are, the antibodies tend to overcome mutational changes that reduce binding. So you lose less binding efficacy of the antibodies that are created of the sera, really, because they look at the pool, right? Not any individual antibody. But the pool of antibodies produced are going to bind stronger to mutations because it's more of a promiscuous, it's a more promiscuous antibody, essentially. So yeah, I thought that was a All really right. cool approach, kind of, kind of going a little bit more broad shotgun really actually gets you something you want. Yeah, I mean, it's always good to have options that give you as broad as immunity as possible, given now the impact that all these new variants is having in previous immunity and how some people are getting reinfected. Um, so anything that works in that is great. But I wonder if that there's, I wonder if because of all the crowding there is with so many different and uh, vaccines and like in development in the market in, in theory whether this kind of vaccine actually would get through the whole jump all the hoops. What do um, you think? I mean, it could. I think that at least the regulators are starting to broaden how they approve things. Mm. Generally, like you know, we have immunotherapies that are approved for microstatolite instable cancer. So it's not mm -hmm. a specific disease. It's a specific molecular yeah. pattern. I think you could get to things like this as a broad antibody that, you know, vaccine that's used as a booster that shows increased antibody levels. I mean, even the validation right now of the kids' antibodies for COVID are based on the levels of uh, antibodies produced. They're not showing that it reduces infection rates or serious infection, just showing it also makes antibodies. So I think at a certain point, they'll, they, I hope the regulators will allow things like this. Okay. Uh, and you know, well, talking about, you know, vaccines and immunity, you know, which uh, there's a, cell, a, type, cell, a type of cell that is very, you know, closely related to immunity against viruses. And we had a really nice conversation about these cells last episode with our guest, Francis Lund. 
You remember? I, I do. And so I know the answer that you want to say is a T cell because it's your favorite cell, but it's not a T cell, is it? No. I, I, I'm going to be generous to the other lymphocytes, the B lymphocytes, as in like option A is T cells and option B is B cells. Someone, someone in my environment would say that B cells stands for boring cells. But after a conversation with Dr. Lund, I have decided to keep an open mind. So I decided to um, really try to inform myself more about B cells and all the things that B cells do. You wanted to be better. <laughs> I want to be better at B cells. So I did, uh, I chose a paper about B cell memory generation. That is things very interesting. It was a, a, quite a read. Uh, publishing immunity uh, from the lab of Taras Kreslavsky. And it seems to be a big team effort from a bunch of people. We had five first authors. Um, and the paper is called Limited Access to Antigen Dr uh, Drives Generation of Early B-Cell Memory While Restraining the Plasma Blast Response. And it was very nice. And I was a really nice read especially the introduction gives a really good kind of framework to understand the, the the study and he basically looks into what happens right after the activation of a b cell uh in doing an immune response in which you have not antigen uh, and they, they are looking into uh t cell uh dependent uh b cell responses and these are by antigens that are you not know, peptidic and require uh, T cell help to to start uh, the the full activation of B cells and the generation of uh, immunoglobulins, particularly IgG uh, or other uh, immunoglobulins apart from IgM. So um, basically, what you see is that what they start looking is introducing to what happens when there is this activation of B cells. And basically, you see a very initial, when, when B cells are presented with antigen, you see an initial kind of burst of proliferation. And then B cells can differentiate into three kind of distinct molecular programs. You have first a rapid differentiation into plasma blasts, which are uh, terminally differentiated uh, cells that are specializing in secreting antibodies but are not necessarily hypermutated or not necessarily very have a very high affinity for the uh, for the antigen itself. Another destiny for cell, for activated B cells can also be uh, becoming part of the germinal center reaction in which they uh, interact with T cells and thanks to their help, they uh, suffer hypermutation in the immunoglobulin genes that helps find uh, clones with higher affinity and also cells change uh, their, their isotype to from IgM, which is the characteristic of naive B cells into, for example, IgG, which is uh, found later on the B cell response. And then another thing that can also, that also happens after B cell activation is the appearance of memory B cells that don't necessarily participate in the germinal center reaction and they are quiescent and they stay and they are found later in the in the blood, and they can be identified later on. And what this paper really goes very deep into is understanding the very early time, how are the decisions made in the first couple of days of how the cells will uh, cycle through this, this different this different um, 
phenotypes. And they, they use some really nice uh, models, particularly one mouse model, in which they have mice that have a particular rearrangement uh, in their immunoglobulins that are specific against a haptin that, um, that when they immunize the mice with this haptin, haptin is, um, it's only, only immunogenic when it's bound, for example, to a carrier protein such as a, a ovalbumin. And they do these experiments and they look at very early stages how the different uh, cells, uh, how the different populations relate to each other. And that's how they can uh, describe how a very, the, the initial proliferation generates what they, what they, what it's known as a activated precursor B cells. And this was not clear how many of these go, continue cycling into memory cells, which ones of them go to be part of the germinal center. And then after the, what the memory B cells, where are these B cells coming from? And what they find surprising is that a lot of the memory, the majority of the memory population months after the initial, uh, the initial um, antigen uh, exposure is actually coming from this very early uh, population that proliferates for the first three days. And then just kind of a large part of it becomes quiescent and becomes a memory population that surprisingly is not part of the hypermutated germinal center cells, but they are rather more, less, less kind of developed cells that become part of the long-lived memory B cell pool, which maybe you would think, because another option could have been that cells that had already cycled and had already had suffered hypermutation and had already very high affinity uh, uh, receptors would be part of the memory, but this is not what they see. And also they see that this has to do in particular with the availability of the antigen that in the initial the initial part of the response, there's antigen probably everywhere. If you have an infection, if you have a lot of, uh, of, of, of the antigen available, but then quickly the antigen becomes concentrated only in the germinal centers and everything else, all the cells that don't make it to the germinal centers don't are not stimulated anymore by antigen and they become quiescent and they become part of a memory response. And then only cells in the germinal centers continue responding to antigen and only cells that have the highest affinities upon mutation continue being stimulated by this antigen that it becomes limiting. And that really generates two, two kind of niches. One inside the germinal centers where the antigen is focused and then everything outside of that uh, just stops, kind of becomes more quiescent because of this functional and spatial separation. Uh, it was a very complex, I think it was a very complex paper, so kudos to the authors. And there was very, a lot of very fancy, uh, they do all of these by single cell RNA-seq, and then they follow they do this trajectory analysis in which they try to kind of pinpoint where the different um, kind of genetic programs relate. So they can identify the different, the germinal center cells, they can uh, identify the activated precursors and they can uh, identify the memory cells. And that's where they, they use this very, very kind of fine grain analysis to to uh, to identify this relationship between the, sub, the subsets. So I mean, that, that's a lot of, lot of work. And the trajectory analysis yeah. is not easy. Um, did they find out or explain how it went from that quiescent center over to where the antigen is? Like how that process happens? You said really there's two populations, right? It starts out as this, you know, 
in the quiescent center, so to speak, once it's formed. But then obviously when there's antigen, it goes over to the germinal center and is active and makes all the good things that we want the B cells to make, like plasma cells, and then go on. Did they ever show how the memory ones that are hanging out, taking a nap, move over to go into active mode? Or what, what causes that to flip? Because the idea of the two populations itself was kind of interesting. And then what controls you going from one state to another? Or do they show transcription factors or even get into that at all? Or is that their next paper? I don't think I completely, you mean up, upon re-stimulation or? Yeah. So, so something re-stimulates it, you know, they're, they're quiescent. And then instead of hanging out in that germinal center, kind of waiting for antigen, it sounds like there's this, this memory population is just hanging out elsewhere quiescent, but they need to be a reserve for a reason, obviously. And so what makes them kick out of that mode? So in principle, uh, memory cells don't stay in the germinal centers. The germinal right. centers are generated for the response. It's where the B cells interact with the T cells, where they uh, have uh, the, the, the the isotype switch to another isotype, another um, uh, yeah constant uh, chain, where they do the hypermutation of their of their binding uh, domains, and then they they leave. And then when they leave, they either become memory cells, and they are, for example, in the bone marrow or on lymphoid tissue. And or they become uh, plasma cells that right. are these cells that are specialized in uh, kind of uh, they're specialized in generating antibodies of high affinity and uh, feeding to the humoral response. Yeah, I was more getting at what do the quiescent cells do once they're quiescent? So they wait for their antigen to pop so up again. I, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So they can, that can happen if you have a second a second exposure, then you would have this this uh, memory cells that are very similar to the original cells, but they you have more, so they have expanded and they have certain, for example, there are certain markers that are related to each of these uh, each of these subsets. Uh, in the case of activated precursors, there is, for example, uh, they uh, they have um, CCR CCR uh, CCR six is uh, specific and that moves the cells to the right places for to lymphoid tissue to be responsive to a second stimulation. Okay. Uh, that was what I was getting at is that they're kind of being held in reserve, but how they're doing it. Okay. Cool. All right. Yeah. Well, we can keep on the B cell theme and talk about multiple myeloma here. All right. Yeah. So, B -cells so gone bad. B cells gone bad, not being better. Uh, God, the dad jokes. I'm sorry, folks. All right. Um, a random, fa the, the title of this paper, it's in blood, is a randomized phase two trial of idiotype vaccination and adoptive autologous T-cell transfer in multiple myeloma patients. I'm going to go with the last three authors on this, actually, because it's three different groups. You have Carl June at Penn. You got Richard Champlin at University of Texas, MD Anderson, and Larry Kwok at City of Hope. Uh, so this is one of their papers. It was presented at the 59th annual meeting of the American Society of Hematology in December 2017. The study was done and completed, I believe, in 2015. And it's still the preprint that is up on blood right now. It hasn't been fully posted yet. So this is an interesting paper. They So it combines a couple of different ideas. It combines the idea of an autologous T-cell transfer can induce immunity against cancer. So take that. So you activate your T-cells and put your own T-cells back in you can also have a cancer vaccine. And so they combine these two. So this isn't CAR T therapy yet, but what they do is they combine these two 
processes together and show essentially that they take an idiotype keyhole lymphet hemocyanin. So this is a vaccine to what they're an anti-myeloma cancer vaccine. And what they do is they get, you know, in the, in the control groups, they just give a KLH. So that's the control or the full vaccine. So they give that to patients, one, you know, one of the two, and then they take out their T cells, expand them, and then autologously transfer them back. And then there's booster vaccines as well. Now in the, but they wait a few times between the first vaccine and pulling the T cells out so that you develop an immune response to the vaccine. And they essentially find that in people who got the cancer vaccine, A, it's safe, and that they see upregulation of genes associated with activation of T cells and effector function and memory CD8 cells. They had wanted to do some more sophisticated outcomes in terms of outcomes and endpoints. They had looked at doing um, a kind of a different immune response profilings, but they were stuck doing um, nanostring because they couldn't get enough data. They were looking for detecting antibody tires using a panel isotype matched antibody systems, but there's so, because it's a very specific isotype and different people, they couldn't drive the N up enough to get good data. So they went with a nanostring approach to look at if there's immune cell activation. And so basically they're saying that if you immunize for a cancer vaccine and then do an autologous transfer, which means you could immunize and then do CAR T cell therapy as well. But if you had a cancer vaccine on first for the cancer of choice, you get a stronger immune response in the subsequent cell-based therapies that you're going to manipulate. That's basically the upshot. What's interesting about the paper is that there's this, there is, this isn't picking on anyone, but I'm wondering, there's, there's another story that we can't see here. So for those of you who are uh, younger readers, it's always good to really dive in the methods. They tell you more than you think they would. Um, this paper was essentially, the, the patients were enrolled and the completion of enrollment, I believe was uh, 2015. And this was presented in 2017 and it's four years later. So I'm wondering if they waited to show this because they have some follow-up work they're doing now that's really interesting that's based on this, whether it's a cancer vaccine spalled by CAR T cell therapy, whether the phase three is mostly going on, because you don't want to, if you're going to go from phase two to phase three and really push this based on this, you don't want to publish all the results in here and give anyone who wants to copy you all your ideas before you're already starting the next trial and trials take time. So my guess is there's something based on this already cooking that we don't know about yet. And so now the paper can come out because it's well cooked and no one can play catch up. So I'm more interested in the next study that comes after this, because this is a phase two, really proof of principle, kind of understanding that can you get an immune response? It's not meant to treat. There wasn't differences in clinical outcomes. It wasn't powered or designed to do that. It was designed to see if there's an immune effect. And I'm wondering, I really want to see what the next story is in a couple of years that pops out or actually based on timing, it could come out in a year because they waited so long for the lag to give themselves enough lead time. Uh, I don't think I, so there, did they compare the patients with only vaccine and vaccine with transfer? No, no it's transfer or transfer mm -hmm. plus vaccine. They do a dummy vaccine or the real oh. vaccine and always do a transfer. So they're showing that okay. the vaccine primes the transfers effects to the cancer okay, in question. Then, right, because the vaccine is before the transfer. And after, they do it both. Oh, they do it both. They booster. And is it before they take the cell yes, out of the patient? Yes, like 28 days before, I think. That 
I'd have to deep dive. So don't super okay. quote me on that. But yeah, but I think it's 28 days before. So 28 days before the transfer, the, the removal of the cells, yeah, they do it. Exactly. Okay. So you have like, maybe you're activating the cells. Maybe you have increasing a little bit the amount of cells that are specific. That's against, that's what they're saying is happening, but they don't show all of that data. Okay. But they're saying they're, Do they look into the specificity of the endogenous TCR of these that's cells? That's what they couldn't do. They couldn't look at the, ah, that, that's, okay. so they instead looked at nanostring profiles for activation of the cells to show that the cells were had an immune activation. Got it. Okay. Yeah. That's why they went okay. to nanostring. I'm also curious to see whether they're working on a second, a second cohort or an improved version of this. Yeah. The next part of the story is good. All right. All right. Well, continuing with the T cells and uh, T cells for transfer. Uh, I have uh, my second paper uh, titled an, an Engineer IL-2 Partial Agonist Promotes CD8 T-cell Stemness. And this uh, published in Nature, uh, first authors Fei Mo, Xia Yu, and Peng Li. And it seems to be a collaboration between the labs of uh, Nicolas Restifo, uh, Christopher Garcia, so Nicolas Restifo at uh, NCI, uh, Christopher Garcia at Stanford and Ward G. Leonard at NIH. And they are looking into the promise of a IL-2 agonist that can uh, imitate the best parts of IL-2 signaling and kind of prevent the bad parts. So very, I would say, quite a holy grail of T-cell uh, in vitro expansion. So there is, so as you know, IL-2 signals through the IL-2 receptor, and IL-2 receptor is composed of several chains, which have different affinities and different capacity of transducing IL-2 signal. So usually you have what are considered intermediate affinity, uh, IL-2 receptor beta and IL-2 receptor gamma, which is also known as the common cytokine receptor gamma chain, which is shared with other cytokine receptors such as IL-15. And then there is the famous CD25, which is a high affinity IL-2 receptor alpha. And so this, they, they, they introduced to uh, a super kind, a super uh, cytokine known as H9, which can very efficiently bind to IL receptor, IL-2 receptor beta and can signal in the absence of IL-2 receptor alpha. And so what they also, they, they, they then move forward to a mute, mutated version of this superkine, uh, which has a single mutation that is located at the interface of this side of this uh, cytokine with the IL-2 receptor gamma uh, kind of interface. So it, it makes it interact differently with the IL-2 receptor gamma. And this generates a reduced binding to this this sub uh, subunit of the receptor, and they do a lot of analysis. So they 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 culture the cells in vitro, and they also look at their capacity of stimulating the proliferation of T cells in vivo in vitro, and then the transfer into mouse models. And basically, I will just go a little bit more in detail. But what the, the basic way they see is that using this uh, modified cytokine, they can generate a slightly different signaling downstream, which activates a little bit less STAT5, which is kind of the canonical 
signaling pathway of IL-2, but then have other some other of the uh, downstream effects, particularly one the ones that in, involve ERK phosphorylation and ERK uh, uh, kinases, that stays kind of the same. And so they 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 start by culturing the cells with this H9T, and they show that in, they can achieve comparable proliferation of the cells, albeit with a kind of slightly higher concentration of the cytokine. But they can generate cells with lower receptors associated with cell exhaustion or kind of um, what's the opposite of stimulatory? Inhibitory receptors. There you go. Uh, such as TIM3 or PD1 or LAC3. And that they uh, see also the cells have less uh, production of effector molecules, such as interferon gamma, but not no changes in TNF alpha. So it's very interesting to see how these this signaling can really modify the expression of these effector molecules. They also see that they express more molecules such, such as CCR7, CXCR3, CD27, and importantly, TCF1, which are all molecules that are associated with stemness or cells with the capacity of, gen of kind of long-lived responses. And they are very much favored when it comes to generating T cells in vitro for therapy. Uh, they do a lot of like well fancy RNA seq. They also do some at, uh, attack seq, so for looking into uh, into DNA accessibility, and they also look that the, the patterns of these molecules are more uh, resemble more patterns of like in vivo memory uh, uh, generated cells than these effector cells that you usually get from stimulation with IL-2 alone with regular IL-2. Um, so they look a lot, and I think what is very nice is they do a, a model of with uh, female uh, T cells, which are, have a receptor specific against G, uh, G, uh, antigen from an epitope from GP100, and they do a melanoma model in mouse, and they also see that these mice have a better tumor clearance, and the cells have a more memory-like signature, and they they persist for longer in the mice. And I think just as a one example that they looked at, they really tried to find the relationship between the, the, the signaling, and particularly STAT5, and the expression of inhibitory receptors such as TIM3. And they can really show that TIM3 expression is, is inversely correlated with STAT5 activity. And that is one of, um, that, that is kind of together of how the mechanism works. They also characterize the uh, they characterize the, the metabolic reprogramming of these cells. And I think that's where they really kind of hit the jackpot when it comes to the, the mechanism. They show that cells that have this reduced expression, uh, the reduced signaling through STAT5, don't have this glycolytic reprogramming as much. And this reduced glycolytic uh, metabolism uh, favors the uh, less differentiated phenotype. And this had already been established in other, using other models. So I think in interesting kind of tool for developing uh, T cell therapies. I think it's important to keep these cells in good shape. So I like, really like the, the, the publication. I think it's really important to think about partial agonists, right? Because like, as you said, too much IL-2 is probably bad, and at least bad in this context, right? Full-blown infection, sure, blast IL-2. Uh, but, and not enough, you don't, you can't grow your cells. And so... As a signaling nerd, I think partial agonists are really interesting because that is how the body works. And, and you know, you can get there through a dose where half the receptors are on and half of them aren't. 
you have partial saturation, but that's really hard to hit. And now we can make drugs that are partial agonists, like Suboxone, which is a therapy for opioid addiction, is a partial agonist for opioid receptors. So you have some pain relief, but it blocks the, you, you, if you take heroin on top of it, it doesn't work because it blocks the receptor because it's a partial agonist and occupies it with more affinity. And I, I think there's just a lot of therapeutic opportunity because we've always been just on switch receptor, off switch receptor, or block receptor, but not like, let's go on, but not all the way on. We don't need to turn it to 11 all the time. And so I, I think this is very interesting because I think it really proves a, a larger, or as an example of proof of a larger point that we need more subtlety in how we signal cells and not just, yeah. not just hammers. I like I like that. That's a good way of putting it. So it's just you need to like really use the the fine tuning uh, and this this design designer designer molecule can be very useful. Yeah, I agree. All right then. Well, we'll get back to other papers here soon, and we're going to be speaking to Dr. Michael Burton at the University of Texas in just a moment. But before we get to that, ensure reliable results with your immunology research from primary human cells to cell isolation kits, culture media, supplements, and antibodies. Stem Cell Technologies provides the tools you need for every step of your immunology research. Interested in cell isolation? Use CellCEP to isolate highly purified immune cells from virtually any sample source in as little as eight minutes. Cells are viable, functional, and immediately ready for your downstream applications. Learn more at easycep.com. Before we get into the episode, we'd like to give our listeners a heads up that Jason is not in the studio today, but he's cutting into the interview while traveling. So you may notice a difference in the quality of his audio, and we're sorry about that. Now back to the show. Hello, everyone. Today, we're talking to Dr. Michael Burton, who is an assistant professor of neuroscience at the School of Behavioral and Brain Sciences at uh, the University of Texas in Dallas. Uh, he has a research group on neuroimmunology and behavior, and he studies the communication between the immune and the nervous system. Dr. Burton, thank you so much for joining us today. Of course. Thank you for having me. So you have some fascinating uh, recent research connect connecting neuro uh, neuroimmunity, pain, and also gender, uh, which we'll dive into in a moment. But I thought that maybe we can get started a conversation uh, with you sharing with us uh, what do we know about uh, this fairly new field of neuroimmunology, what has been your experience and what led you to study, in this case, uh, for example, the, the relationship between immune receptors, pain, and, and gender? Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, neuroimmunology actually is a, is a, is a really uh, young field, like you said. Uh, the, the term itself was coined in around 1980. Um, and and really before that and even around then, uh, it was thought that the immune system and, and the nervous system, the, primarily the brain, didn't really interact with one another. Um, in fact, it was you know immunoprivileged site. Um, and 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 if, and if you say that now, uh, how different and how far we've come in just you know 40 years, 50 years almost is just absolutely phenomenal. And so. Um, how I got started in it was when I was in graduate school, um, I was playing, I was, well, when I was an undergrad, actually, I was uh, playing uh, football at the University of Illinois and ended up getting hurt and ended up really getting interested in how um, injuries affected your behavior and, you know, if there's a way to, to, to heal people um, to a point of essentially being back to normal, air quotes. 
And I ended up working in a, a lab space with a lab group that was a, a fairly preeminent in the, in the field. And for me, uh, I'm a first-generation college student, so I didn't have that like pre-knowledge or, or, or an understanding that, you know, you need to find a good lab in a good space. I just kind of stumbled onto one where um, the, the, my lab, um, the boss of my lab was, uh, his name was Rodney Johnson and um, at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. And we ended up, uh, wor- I ended up working on really interesting experiments that looked at how um, various cytokines um, influence the brain in the context of cognition. Which is right around the, right up the alley. What I was interested in, I uh, wanted to find find out, and um, you know, time developed. And I, this was just as an undergrad. I worked with him for about three years, and um, ended up going to the University of Missouri um, for to work on a master's. But ended up just and the, and the master's was in like developmental neurobiology. So I ended up, uh, you know, that was interesting. But I really had a love for this interaction between the nervous system and the immune system. So I ended up actually going back to the University of Illinois to work for Rod. Um, and that was, you know, really a, the experience that kind of drove me to want to make sure I did that for the rest of my life. And so the my graduate school project was looking and understanding um, at uh, signaling mechanisms and this uh, cytokine interleukin-6 and how we can go from what we call classic uh, signaling to trans-signaling. And what trans-signaling is, is how a um, cytokine can bind to a receptor, uh, but not directly on the, the, the cell membrane, but in the extracellular matrix. And why that's important is for a couple reasons. One is um, some receptors do that to kind of inhibit the, the action of the cytokine, and other receptors do that to actually make it possible for other cells that don't have that receptor to respond to that receptor because they have co-receptors. And so um, we went through kind of a few years of understanding how as you age, you develop mild cognitive impairment and and more um, cognitive deficits to peripheral um, injury or, or other stimuli like the flu. Um, an old person, an aged person, over the age of 65 who gets the flu just isn't a typical experience anymore, right? The immune system uh, is overreactive and that changes uh, that person's behavior quite drastically. And so we were trying to understand what about at least this signaling pathway is important. Um, and it turns out that the trans-signaling pathway is very important for upregulating um, interleukin-6 because typically the interleukin-6 receptor um, isn't on a neuron and or at least not highly expressed on neurons, but through trans-signaling the co-receptor can bring that uh, particular cytokine to neurons and make them more responsive. Um, so anyways, uh, so th- through graduate school, we ended up figuring that all out and, and, and I ended up kind of wanting to uh, uh, move on and learn a little bit more about how would you, you know, uh, modify or, or, or change animals in a, in a molecular way. So I ended up moving to uh, Dallas at UT Southwestern um, where I worked in a lab of Joel Elmquist to learn how to modify mice, essentially genetically modify mice, um, and do this kind of um, intersectional science where uh, we could take a gene, remove it from whatever cell we want, so that we could understand what that cell does in, in, in processing. Um, and that was a neuroendocrine space. Um, and I knew um, when I started that space that I wasn't going to end up there, that we we're going to take this neuroendocrinology um, and then marry it with neuroimmunology. 
Um, and so uh, the, the pain part actually was really uh, a serendipitous part because I was looking at a neuroendocrine um, uh, process and trying to understand how peripheral sensory neurons uh, mediated uh, endocrinology in the periphery and metabolism in the periphery. Turns out not a ton, a little bit, um, but some of the same genes um, that are expressed in that same system are highly expressed in the pain system. And I was seeing some effects just sitting in my animal facility by myself at 10 o'clock at night, realizing every time I, you know, interact with these animals, they act a particular way. Whenever I um, go ahead and, and clip their tails, um, these animals that have this gene or don't have this gene in these receptors um, and these uh, sensory neurons, they don't move as much. And so I ended up seeking some help by um, my second postdoc mentor, uh, Ted Price, uh, who had just moved to UT Dallas from University of Arizona. And with that, I was able to marry some of these projects that I had um, as, a, as a postdoc early on in neuroendocrinology um, and then and in pain. And, and the funny part is that was in uh, 2015 where um, this NIH mandate or sex as a biological vari variable was um, in, more imposed uh, it was earlier than that, but it was like it became like, all right, guys, we have to start doing this. And there was a couple really um, huge papers, seminal papers in the sex difference field um, in pain um, coming from the group of uh, Jeff Mogul um, uh, in Canada. And so we uh, when I started my postdoc, my second postdoc, it was I have these really cool mice or I have a really interesting effect. Um, I know a lot about endocrinology hormones already. Um, and then there is sex differences that people find in, in, in pain pathways. And so it kind of all just fell together and um, ended up writing one of the um, NIHK awards for um, developing myself a little bit further because we needed more time because I was running out of time um, and, and money. So I needed to make sure that we, we could um, have the transition. And so we were able to do that um, and, and acquire um, a K award. And we were... Um, and the purpose of that one was looking at sex differences and pain development. Um, and so it all is really interesting because one of the biggest sex differences that was kind of discovered in pain development was how um, immune cells interact with the pain system. Um, and so in males, it, it was found that or shown that um, an immune cell, uh, the microglia, was in, in the spinal cord was very important for mediating pain in males, um, where uh, it was T cells um, in females, um, at least in a couple papers um, back when I first started in the pain field. But actually, um, my lab is actually really interested in in you know metabolism, uh, neuroendocrinology, and we think, and others have shown as well that it may not necessarily be. Um, uh, a sex or cell-specific sex difference, but just metabolically how similar cells like microglia and T cells um, signal within the sex. And so it may be microglia are important in females, but just metabolically it's a little, it's a di different case. Um, and so kind of that's where, how the lab started essentially. Um, but you know, ever since we started, we were really been interested in, in just different non-neuronal cells or immune cells um, in the context of, of pain development. And so um, uh, not just your prototypical immune cells, macrophages, T cells, but also uh, epithelial cells, 
wherever you see a nerve cell, you typically will find some epithelial cell wrapped around it um, and fibroblasts holding them together. And so we have um, a couple different projects looking at those individual types of cells and how they interact um, via immune mechanisms with uh, neurons to mediate pain. So. So yeah, I wanted to follow up with that a little bit on your uh, your more rec most recent paper, um, the one in brain behavior and immunity about sensory neuron TLR4. So some of my background work was looking at the role of what you would typically think of as pain receptor signaling on enterocytes. And now you're looking at what you think of as immune, or I guess enterocyte, because I think enterocytes are immune cells, is mm -hmm. my joke. But you're, you're looking at TLR4, that's an immune receptor on a neuron. I think I, I think these types of studies and concepts are really interesting and something underappreciated. So I was wondering if you could speak to that about that. I was talking about that with intersectional, you know, signaling and science of, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, we, we, we talk and think about in the lab all the time, we say the conversation between an immune cell and um, a, a peripheral sensory neuron or, or a nociceptor pain sensing neuron. Um, and because we, the idea there is how is that kind of communication happening, the signaling. And so turns out there are, if you do a, a transcriptional profile of an immune cell, it looks really similar um, to um, a peripheral sensory neuron. And if you take the peripheral sensory neuron and you do the um, uh, transcription profile, they look, it looks very similar to an immune cell, but also um, sensory neurons actually have a, they're really interesting because they actually look like a couple other types of cells too. And so um, for a while, uh, when I was a postdoc, we were doing some transcriptional experiments, RNA transcription experiments, um, transcriptomics, and trying to understand what's happening in uh, these peripheral sensory neuron uh, populations. And so we would get um, these runs and these peripheral sensory neurons would look like, I mean, I would see genes. I'm like, why is there adipocyte genes in here? We must have got some fat in there. Why is there, you know, all these receptors for cytokines in there when we didn't expect that? Um, we must have gotten some immune cells in there. So we did some experiments where we did something called laser capture microdissection just to capture just the neurons. Uh, and the neuronal profiles, and it's super clear, same genes are there. And so it, it obviously, they're making receptors to respond to cytokines from immune cells, but also the sensory neurons, sorry. And then um, they're also um, making cytokines themselves and chemokines themselves, so they're able to kind of talk back and forth um, with immune cells in, in, a, in a very um, clear way where they're able to recruit an immune cell to a site, they're able to um, uh, talk to the immune cell to tell them, hey, hey relax, back off. Um, and, and really the past, like I would say six years, people have found all types of amazing um, 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 conversational pieces, I like to call them, in the middle of an immune cell and a, and a sensory neuron um, because just no one has really thought about it before. And so it was really, it was, it's, it's free reign. And there's been just uh, tons of, of, of progress um, on understanding how that happens. But really, I think like, I think the, the, the basis of it all is um, metabolically and physiologically, they just express very similar receptors, cytokine profiles. Um, and, and no one really thought about that before because you would think, you know, pain, pain sensing. Um, but then that's actually one of the coolest things about uh, neuroimmunology itself was that um, but even, you know, as early as the 70s, um, it was shown that uh, immune cells expressed um, andro um, androgen receptors as well as adrenergic receptors and other things that are involved in, in neuroendocrinology um, and, and, and um, uh, pain as well. So 
it was pretty clear that the immune system was responsive, but now it's super obvious that the peripheral nervous system is just as responsive in mediating these, this conversation. And so actually TLR4 is the, the gene that we were looking at in the context of, of um, peripheral modulation, peripheral ner nervous system modulation of, of metabolism. And what we found is it, it didn't do much. Um, it, it, it does affect some feeding behaviors in, in, in a way um, that, um, and that, actually that work is still not published yet, but um, the, the really cool finding was that when we looked at really acute um, pain states that females really, really use their um, sensory neurons in a way that was just way more permissive for acute responses and then also um, the transition to chronic responses of pain um, versus males. And do we understand more mechanistically how these differences come to be? Yeah, it's interesting, right? Um, if you look at the, the, the gene expression or, or profiles of, of TLR4 in males and females on their sensory neurons, they're almost they're pretty much identical. So they, they, it's not about just the signaling. People always say, well, is, more, is there more of one than the other? Um, no, it, it, it doesn't seem to be the case. And, and actually, we were, we were a little worried um, that that was the case because then that's just kind of closed book there. Um, but uh, it doesn't turn out to be the case whatsoever. Um, and it, 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 it seems to be, we're, we're not 100% positive on it just yet, but it seems to be uh, metabolically the, the um, peripheral sensory neurons um, are keyed in with um, estrogens, androgens, and other hormones um, that, are, that are responsible for, obviously, um, the sexes and sex differences. Um, and, it, and it turns out that other downstream um, and upstream nuclear receptors um, interact with hormone receptors, which are also nuclear receptors. Um, and we think that um, that's almost exclusively metabolically um, mediated. So estrogen uh, mediates this particular metabolic profile in peripheral sensory neurons in females that it just doesn't in, in, in males. Uh, and it makes it makes them more responsive. Um, and that's kind of where we are at the moment. And, and kind of I get this question all the time is why is that the case? Why would that be the case, at least um, evolutionarily? Um, and I'm kind of pro probably beat you to the punch because it's probably what you're going to ask. Um, and we, we don't know that we don't know the answer to that either. Um, uh, kind of one of the, the, the kind of primary thoughts in the lab is, is that, you know, in females, it's maybe more and it historically not now, but it maybe have been more um, necessary for them to be as responsive as possible because if you stimulate TLR4 on a sensory neuron, um, females essentially react to it faster versus in males it takes a little bit of time for for the for the signal to get to where it needs to get to and, and for them to experience a similar level of pain. Um, and we think that's because uh, if it's a TLR4 stimulated um, activation that you need a little bit help from a, an immune cell in males and it just takes a little bit more time and we were thinking about it in the context of, of hunter-gatherer systems and if you're out you're out in the hunt um we're looking for whatever it is you're looking for you don't need to necessarily your body shouldn't necessarily respond to an immediate um, um threat if it didn't have to or immediate injury you may need to get back to the village or you need you know get back to where you need to get to um versus that may not be the case in females they may be you know have to take care of, of um offspring et cetera et cetera um, and whenever I say it, that's it always sounds so, you know, but 
it's just evolution, right? It's just just the idea of, uh, of of why that would be the case. And really, I, honestly, I just think it's it's just like I said before, a hormone to sensory neuron metabolic conversation, and that's just kind of what how how it works. Yeah, I wonder also whether that has to do with the fact that women have to bear a child that it's not hers, that it's not her, that it's a foreign organism, and maybe their immune system needs to be wired differently to tolerate this this external thing that is growing inside of them at some point. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh -huh. Yeah. And I think it's really nice to have this research as a, as a woman myself, uh, especially when for so many years uh, it has been as kind of assumed that all of these basic uh, principles would apply for both genders kind of uh, without much without much difference, it's, it's nice to to see a little bit more focus on on the differences, and I hope that yeah we keep learning more about it. Absolutely, I mean that that was that was the issue actually. Is it was you know all of a sudden um, we are you know so deep in in research and and translating uh, preclinical research into um, the clinic and 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 having clinical trials and clinical trials are only good a percentage of the time. Um, and it turns out that even the drugs that are that are on the market that are used now are only effective for especially in chronic pain in 30% of the cases, you know, so there, there's clearly some disconnect in, in what we were, at least before, um, and what we we're trying to figure out, right? I mean, it, it, the, uh, I always say I think personalized medicine is the way to go, but um, that, I mean, that's where we're going. And in the context of if you have these two different systems that are different, um, and, and varied in, in a lot of ways that you, you can't necessarily treat them the same way. Um, and But for a long time, females were actually ignored in the pain field um, completely. So, because um, they were deemed uh, difficult subjects to work with in the context of, of preclinical work, uh, difficult subjects to work with. They um, may be, um, uh, the, the cycle, the estrogen cycle may have effects, may, may, they may not. Uh, but the problem with that is, um, and especially in, in, in a mouse, the, the extra cycle is so short that it's hard to, 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 to make that kind of case. But, but yeah, I agree with you 100%. Yeah, so to go along with this, I think we all know that inflammation modulates uh, pain responses, right? That's what, you know, you know hyperinflammatory algesia, hyperalgesia from inflammation is a, is a well-known thing. But I was wondering, could you speak to what the nervous system does to the immune system at all? Like, how, how is the nervous system impinging? And you got into some of it, but does there seem to be a common theme? Like, the common theme the other way is cytokine sensitize nerve cells. Okay. Right, exactly. But, but right. what's the theme the other way? Well, it, it actually it seems to be varied, actually, and I think that's one of the one of the key drivers to the sex differences as well, where um, immune uh, nervous cells or, or peripheral sensory neurons are communicating to immune cells to tell them, "Hey, look, um, come to this site because um, we need you." Um, and and this is in the case of uh, chemokine expression, um, chemokines like uh, CCL2 that are expressed by um, peripheral sensory neurons that recruit um, neutrophils and macrophages to sites to help with in, more inflammation and, and kind of bring inflammation um, to the point to clear whatever is causing the inflammation. Um, but on but on the other side, um, there's also anti-inflammatory um, cascades as well that 
are important and, and people have shown um, really, really great work where if you got rid of a sensory neuron and then you had like a, either like a flesh eating bacteria or some type of really um, huge infection that that actually um, increased um, the infection or worsened the infection actually. So clearly the peripheral sensory neurons are, are they have a, a negative effect by uh, producing um, neurotransmitters that are telling uh, the peripheral, uh, peripheral immune cells to, you know, become more quiescent or, 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 or kind of chill out. Um, one of, another huge cytokine that um, peripheral sensory neurons um, express is um, interleukin, interleukin-10, uh, which is a um, anti-inflammatory um, uh, cytokine as well. Um, and so I think it depends on the system. It, it depends on the sex. It depends on the uh, the hormone that's 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 there, the predominant hormone that's there, because uh, that's a whole other conversation for a whole other day um, when we talk about uh, gender versus sex and and and, and what have you. Um, and so right now we focus on you know you, you born this particular um, system, and 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 that's what we kind of focus on at the moment. But I had some really great questions um, at a talk I gave just last week about this as well. You know, people transitioning, et cetera. Uh, I think that kind of clinical data. Sorry, I kind of went off on a tangent, but that kind of clinical data though is really interesting and kind of helps lead us to understand. Hey, look, there there are these um, sex differences, and it does drive. Um, you know, clinical development and therapeutic development that we really need to pay attention to because, you know, this drug worked before and now it doesn't. And, and you know, so, you know, the population may be small, but it's super clear what's happening, et cetera. Um, but yeah. So to, to continue kind of, I guess, to, to springboard a little bit to go along with your K, uh, you mentioned that, you know, your K was key to your success. I ended up writing one of those as well before having to jump ship because uh, of a sudden move by my PI during COVID. Um, and I've written one that was was going to be funded, but then I had to say goodbye to. But I was hoping maybe we could start a little bit of a discussion on, you know, for people who are listening about what you think makes a good K. And so for people who aren't aware of what the K is, just to provide some context, this is a bridging grant <clears throat> that the NIH offers for junior faculty or people who are ready for, to go from postdoc to faculty that provides you most of a faculty level salary and some money for either some fancy experiments or often a technician. This is very high level and there's several flavors of K, but since we have a pretty international podcast, I don't think we need to dive that big. You can think of it as a career development award. So the American Gastroenterological Society has one. Various other private foundations have like a career development junior faculty. It's not the here's a bunch of money for your lab. It's the step before, but it's often what you need after postdoc or to leave from postdoc to faculty is kind of the next stepping stone. And it's kind of an area where people have trouble getting it. And it's one of the big gates. And so, you know, Mike, you, you got one. I, I was able to get one and say goodbye to it, sadly. Um, but maybe you could give some thoughts on what really makes it successful at a high level, because I think it's one of the big hurdles that uh, people face. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would definitely agree with you. Um, for, for, for me, um, uh, it was right around the time when there was a, an update of the, 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 the mandate of the, the amount of years a postdoc experience you can have before you couldn't apply for a K because essentially what the K does it gives you you know a year or two left of your postdoc but then it also gives you a few years um, to like you said perfectly springboard into your lap and so the idea is if you're already super advanced in your 
a postdoc that you should be able to uh, acquire uh, a position. At least that's what their thoughts were. Um, you know, that's a whole other conversation if I agree with that or not. But for me, um, I, I, you, you'll probably see what I feel when I say the next thing, which is essentially I was at that stage of my last year where I can apply. I had applied to uh, K twice before. Well, sorry, once before and didn't get it the first time. And that's just, uh, you know, what I'll say to everybody that's listening out there, that happens and it's going to happen right before you apply to a very important grant so you don't get it um, definitely the first time, but definitely try again. So with the feedback um, that we got from it, uh, we were able to kind of um, change it to a point that we were able to just sneak it in. It was the last possible um, application cycle that I can have. If I didn't get it, I don't know what I would have done, you know, it was just one of those kind of, um, you know, squeaking in at the last possible moment. Um, and so, you know, a little bit of luck, I think has a lot to do with, 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 with these grants for sure. Um, and, and, and timing. And I think what a lot of my application had to do with, it was looking at sex differences and uh, cell specific uh, mechanisms that drive sex differences. And it was a really timely, um, um, application where um, there was just a few papers that were talking about it and really high profile papers that were talking about it and uh, it kind of caught a lot of a lot of attention and so I think that's kind of a, a, a big one for for especially for for NIH grants but K but K awards is you know what are you going to do that is interesting and going to keep the reader and reviewer uh, reading it um, I was able to uh, kind of give a actually have a um, a webinar uh, that I gave about this um, this exact thing, uh, Jason, uh, where we we, we kind of came together. We, we we talked a little bit about some of the things that are are important, um, and um, one of them was you know identifying a really good uh, system, a really good uh, village of individuals that are, are going to you're going to work with and, and really clearly identify how they're going to work together to make sure that um, you will be kind of um, facilitated through the end of your postdoc to start your own village and be a be a integral part of or your own house and to be an integral part of the village. Um, and, and, and so I actually had two mentors, two um, postdoc mentors that were um, implicated um, in my second K, which in the first there was only one of them. And I think saying that there's going to be two people that come from two different fields that are going to offer um, a specific niche um, training experience really did help quite a bit because usually when you have a K, the idea is that you want to you want some time to develop one last major um, um, system of, of experience that really is going to kind of make you niche and put you in a position that's going to be successful. And so um, I was able to do that because I was going from nowhere near pain to I just started working in a pain lab two months before my cave was actually a month. I put the application a month before I even started in the pain lab. And um, we were just so I think also we we're just so excited about the, the grant itself and the projects itself. Um, and that that the the excitement kind of kind of really bowled over into every every page. It was just no one had done it, and it was really exciting. Um, but then the the way that 
it was discussed at least via our summary statements, which is you know essentially what the reviewers give you, um, is how you know the project was exciting, how everybody was going to work together very well, and also how um, that whatever whenever we were done with this particular war, especially the the training part, it was going to put me in a position, the applicant in a position to be super unique where they were doing something that was not their previous mentor at any full capacity. It was really niche enough that they weren't openly competing. Um, I'm not openly competing with either one of my mentors at all. And actually, you know, while our grants may go into similar study sections per se, in some cases, but in overall, there's very little overlap or very little um, um, competition with either one of my mentors because of what we do. So I think that those kind of big things were very important. And, and, and I've seen this a lot where a lot of mentors are afraid to say, our sponsors are afraid to say, I'm not going to touch this. This is this, this is this applicants. Um, they'll say, you know, I'll support it. And they, they won't outright say it. And I've sat on, on the study sections and been a reviewer for K awards and it's and been in the room when people talk about that. There's a super, it's a huge component of a successful K to say we're relinquishing this, um, not just this expertise, but this this ex these experiments and this thought, uh, these thoughts to um, the applicants so that they could be as successful as possible. We're going to make sure that they are successful. So that really highlights the importance of having good mentorship right throughout your journey into faculty. I think that's always a a very common story among all of our successful guests. Absolutely, and then also, it, and it, I've had great faculty mentors um, that are, you know, my old postdoc mentors, new mentors that I've got picked up along the way. I'm a kind of like a mentor scavenger. I'm just grabbing them up as I go. Um, it's been great. Do you have any particular advice on maybe shy postdocs that are looking for a mentor or want to kind of emulate this uh, and find the right people to help them through? That's, that's a great question and I, and I think to be uh, you can't change being shy and, and you, should, you don't have to I think individuals that want to help you will right and I think that the interactions that you have with people will lead you to, to to understand that and so i'm actually really introverted myself um which you probably can't tell but uh, i am and so to be able to interact with people um for me is, is a little bit of, of anxiety um or anxious um, um as well uh, but you know understanding that I, you know you need these people to know who you are you need people to kind of even if they don't even if they're not going to be a mentor they know you exist because they may see your application down the road. They may see your student's application at some point and just know, oh, I know that guy or that, that person is a really nice person, you know, and, and the interactions I have with them are great. Um, but I think most of my mentor um, relationships have kind of just been built on like a natural you know, evolution of just um, meeting someone, talking with them a little bit about their research, about my research, and then just being like, I can feel comfortable asking them. I just come out the gate with it because I think, I, you know, I need, to, I need to warm up myself too, so I get it, so. So, I guess what I'm thinking about with, with K's and everything else is 
would you advise get the K then go on faculty market? And that that's what I've always thought. Yeah, so that that seems to be, you know, I've been in PI for the past four years now, and I've been on a, a couple of um, um, searches now, and it seems that the top candidates, air quotes, either have a K, ninety plus percent have a K, um, some sort of K, or they have just a couple, C, you know, a CNS paper, um, not just one though, a couple. Um, throughout their career, um, because I think one of the things that um, people are worried about, uh, at least in the job market, is, you know, sure, you work, you have a CNS paper, you worked in a lab that pumps them out um, as a postdoc, and you, you, we realize that, right? But if you have done it across your career, and you understand it, have a couple of them, that that's pretty solid as well. I mean, I'm not saying all hope is lost if you don't. I'm just saying that seems to be um, kind of some of the more, um, more applicants that fill the pool um, that you're applying with. And I think uh, at first, like I said, we go back and forth with the whole cutoff rule of the Ks. But if you think about it, um, that cutoff didn't exist before. You had some people that were seven plus year postdocs that had six papers as a postdoc. I mean, those people were just just scooping up jobs left and right and it was leaving nothing for you know I had a, a little bit short of a postdoc and didn't have as many papers but I did have the K you know and so like I think it gives you a little bit of, of, of room because what the K says is you're committed to writing grants for yourself and your development and for your space and I mean for, for the institution because the institution can, can get a little bit from that K from the beginning but also understanding that you're going to be writing those in the future. Um, and so I think that's obviously one of the, the biggest reasons why the K has as much value as it does, um, not for, for the institution. So I guess real quick before I pass the torch off to Brenda, when you say CNS, we all know that means cell science, nature or nature science. But is a nature only nature? Does a nature paper include nature immunology or or nature communications? What, what, you know, obviously, it probably doesn't include scientific reports, but like. If right. nature is in the name and it's one of the bigger ones, do those? Do you think those count in the conversations, yeah, or can only be nature, no other words? No, no, those definitely count. I think those the the, the press articles, um, you know, cell press, nature press, uh, journal, sorry, are are definitely they they, they count, especially in in, in in people's fields, right? I mean, I, people know that in nature, if there's a nature neuroscience paper on someone's CV that's a huge feat, right? Um, people know, you know, if there's um, even a cell reports paper is, is a gigantic feat in its own right. And so I think that that, that matters, but it's not strictly the single name journals um, that are going to pull it. And I, I think that's what helps too, right? Because, you know, it, it's a little easier for some people or, or a little bit more feasible for some labs to be able to do that, to get the the press papers, cell press papers, nature press papers as well. I also hear that often it's nice to also publish in the in the journals that are of the area and that also has a lot of value. Uh, Absolutely. But it can be sometimes a, bit, a little bit disheartening that um, yeah, to find the right combination of papers to have. Sometimes people are, are lucky or they have projects that take a lot of years to to have uh, bring their results. Um, 
it's a really complex navigation. Try to find this this uh, kind of grants. And also, no, I'm here. I'm based in Amsterdam. Here in Europe, you also have uh, research uh, grants for starting uh, for kind of early career researchers. It's always difficult to know what what really gives you the edge and what it's um, what are people looking. Uh, it was such a nice conversation today. Uh, very excited about your research, and uh, we are looking forward to see. Uh, more coming from your lab and thank you for all your experience and for sharing it with our listeners I think it's very valuable for those looking to make the transition into faculty and at the end of the podcast we always like to uh, ask our guest a little fun question uh, non maybe non necessarily related to the science and so for I would like to ask you, you no know, we have this kind of little small sentences that you you can fill the blanks on uh, for example, when in your in your case, if you say when I'm not conducting research, I am blank. Oh, okay, I am uh, cooking. I'm trying to find a new recipe. I am trying to um, develop some spice or make my own spice, etc. Um, that's I find a lot of fun in that. So you're basically doing science in the kitchen. I'm not sure this counts. <laughs> uh, I guess that's I guess that's true in a way, yeah. And if I could have one superpower, I would be blank. I thought about that a lot as a kid, actually. Um, uh, I would I would fly. I can uh, agree with that. I, I think I think flying is one of those. Yeah, I, yeah, I definitely would fly. And I can't start the day without blank. Oh, that's easy. I can't start the day without an uh, ice cold uh, glass of water. I don't drink coffee at all. The smell is great, coffee, but I just can't taste the, the can't handle the taste. But the water is really, it lubes up everything. I'm going, I'm, I'm good to go. That sounds very healthy. All right. <laughs> For the rest of us caffeine addicted people. Uh, we're going to start up a day with a coffee, I think. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, yeah, we're looking forward to see where, where uh, your research takes you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. That brings us to the end of the show. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at immunologypodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all of the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Immunopodcast or via email at info at immunologypodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. See you next time. <laughs>